very little is universal in the human experience. We can't really look back 200, 2,000, or 20,000 years and see a universal human experience one time. At least, usually. I mean, that is until we think about the blood, guts, gore, violence, horniness, nudity, entirely unsubtle references to dicks and or vagina, and sex that has saturated the very, very absorbent and not at all stain-resistant carpet of history. But for some reason, nowadays when we artists want to indulge a bit in some of the proud traditions of human history, we get told to censor it. Why is that? And why is it sometimes good to be censored? I mean, how do you even write gore and fucking well? All of this and more on this episode of Why Are You Talking About This? Nerd. Hello everyone, and welcome to this episode of Waytad Nerd, on a, once again, very, very late episode. Uh, sorry about that, everything's been kicking my ass a bit. Uh, anyways, I am your host, William, and I will be your horny, vaguely violent, uh, squeamish host with body dysphoria. AKA, I like my violence and sex, but don't like the blood or being naked. Uh, before we keep going, I want to thank you for listening to the show. It means the world to me to have my words moistly plopping into your eardrums like your choice of bodily fluids and chunky bits. Also, if your favorite bodily fluid is sex-related and it's chunky, you should probably go to the doctor. Uh, I still don't really have any updates that are pressing concerns, but just make sure to keep sharing the show, reviewing, liking, commenting, all that other engagement stuff. Uh, it'll keep the show growing and also will help me to eventually escape my job prison, turn this into career, and probably be able to keep a better pace. Probably. Hopefully. Anyways, on to the show before we can really think about that too much. Alright, so this week we're talking about a collection of topics that I can best describe collectively as taboos. Uh, specifically, we're going to be talking about how to apply and when to apply uh, gore, violence, nudity, and sex. And I don't suggest taking shots whenever I say one of those four things, because you will die. So, I mean, besides that, what really is this episode about? Well, basically self. Well, basically self-censorship and will to pill and when to pull your punches narratively. So let's let's just start off talking a little bit about censorship. Uh, in general, self-censorship is basically whenever you choose to alter your thoughts, actions, or presentation 
To appeal to a different audience, out of fear of rejection or punishment, a feeling of deference towards a particular topic, or in accordance to laws and guidelines. Yeah, like, whenever you decide that you uh, shouldn't bash the guy who cut in line in front of you in the grocery store in the head 47 times with a can of Red Bull and a tube sock, you're self-censoring. Either because you know it's illegal and that you'd get in trouble, or because you are raised right and feel a deference towards the sanctity of life, even if that person clearly doesn't feel any sanctity towards your life. Or when you're writing, you or when you're writing and you decide to not include an extended scene of a man getting a piece of fiberglass shoved into his pee hole because reasonably your audience doesn't want to hear it. And censorship in general is just this, but someone forces you to do something to censor your behavior or work with no choice really involved in the matter. Now, censorship in art becomes a point of contention when you introduce the question of responsibility to it. And this is on the continuum from full author- authorial responsibility uh, for their audience and full audience responsibility for themselves. So the argument kind of breaks down to well, maybe if they didn't want to read the snap, crackle, and pop of fiberglass in the dick mouth, they wouldn't have opened my book. On the audience responsibility end, all the way to, well, maybe if you didn't want your audience to hate that you did that and stop reading, maybe you shouldn't have included it in the first place. Anyone else's dick hurt a little bit? Anyways, the argument is largely about the degree of narrative freedom the author has. And something that will be a theme throughout this episode is the lack of truly actually understanding how people work on the far ends of this continuum. Because having maximum narrative freedom, and therefore zero censorship, kind of ignores the fundamental principle that you make stories for people to engage with them. So if you make a story about demon worship, incest, cannibalism, murder, and authoritarianism, you can't then really be surprised that it doesn't sell well with the very Judeo-Christian, very conservative, very opposed to eating human flesh, West. And yes, I'm specifically referencing the coffin of Andy and Lele, which I can't promise won't come up again on this episode. Also not saying that uh, Nemli, Nemle, I do not have pronounce, I do not know how to pronounce their name. Uh, I apologize for that. Uh, wasn't expecting for people to get pissy and uncomfortable. I think that was probably the point. But I've also seen people get up in arms that people were disturbed about, you know, the eating of multiple humans and also the sister fucking. Um, anyways, on the other side, entirely censoring the story as to appeal to the broadest audience possible compromises the purpose in the other direction. Because stories are also created to give an outlet to artists to tell a story they want to tell. So if you tell them to remove all the references to peril, violence, uh, human sacrifice, unimaginable levels of disease and suffering, way too much leather for it to not be a fetish, and things that are horny in the only the most disturbing ways possible, then you aren't really writing about, like, dark elves, are you? I mean, at that point, you're just writing goth elves with a collective bad case of mommy's boy, and you aren't my real dad complex. So, with... All of that rattling around in your brain, trying to think about the philosophical, moral implications of all of that, uh, let's talk about our pantheon of this week. Beginning with gore. Put simply, gore, or viscera not being where it's supposed to be because of injury or violence, 
serves as a cathartic test for the human brain. Basically, as a way for our stupid little lumps of fat electricity that rest between our ears to practice how it's supposed to react to violence and gore without being in a situation where it's do something or join Oonga Boonga Gong. What the, what the fuck did I write? <laughs> sometimes I write, like, sometimes I write, like, jokes where the joke is that the name that I decided to use is funny, and then I don't think about how I'm, how I have to pronounce that in the middle of a run-on sentence. Uh, <laughs> anyways, um, uh, where to even restart this sentence? You know, at this point, this is just part of the joke. Uh, <laughs> in a situation where it's do something or join Uga uh, Bagonga um, in the saber toothed stomach, I decided just to not look at the word that I wrote. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, anyways, real gore is really traumatic, uh, so obviously. So, being exposed to it in a fictional setting gives us the safe space to experience a strong emotional response and get the dopamine from everything ending up okay in the end. And because the dumbass that controls the meat mech that is your body thinks that what's on the TV happened in real life, it thinks that it's being prepared to handle the real thing. I mean, it's not. It'll realize that if it ever actually happens. But it likes to think that it's being prepared for the real thing. So the most common usage is to so the most common usage of gore is to act as a tension breaker. Say there's a fight going on in your ultra hardcore sci-fi action movie that inexplicably has trench warfare. Well, during a firefight by having your love interest get their entire dick, balls, intestines, stomach and everything below their rib cage turned into soup and force the audience to watch them try to crawl away. Uh, you vent off the tension of the entire otherwise very overwhelming emotionally firefight by giving the audience something to be horrified and disgusted by. Which in turn means that gore is very effective in action and horror genres, since it gives the audience an emotion to pump all this tension into, like Andrew doesn't actually. I'm going to keep doing that, by the way, for as long as it's funny to me. Sorry in advance. Uh... But this is also incredibly effective as comedy. Like, if you have a dark comedy about zombies and things are getting intense, you can relieve tension and give your audience a laugh by spraying a character in zombie guts and make them scream in a funny way. However, there is also a double-edged sword with gore. Because, while it's a great tension relief, it's also something an audience can be easily desensitized to. Which is great if that's the point, not so great if you want your audience to be equally disgusted the whole way through instead of annoyed that you're wasting their time with yet another scene where a monster rips someone's guts out and uses them as weapons. And now we get to violence, which is just physical conflict of some kind. Which is similar to, but a lot more complex than gore when it's, when it's actually used. Violence is used often to relieve tension and to resolve conflict, especially when killing is on the table in your story. Because then your audience is cool with and expects for conflict to be ended permanently if lethal violence is used. But before we get into how it's used, it's also important to note the effects of showing the violence changes depending on some factors. 
Uh, those factors being the continuum of authorization, justification, and how chaotic or orderly it is. Authorized violence being something allowed by the authorities, which can be a turnoff for anti-authoritarian audiences, while unauthorized or violence disapproved of by superiors in the story can be a turnoff to people watching that trust those authority figures. Uh, which is often why, like, in stories where you follow rebels as the protagonists, they very early on establish that the authority figures are not to be trusted. Um, unjustified, unjustified violence is almost always disapproved of by an audience, you know, like just randomly shooting people without a reason given or implied, while justified violence can give your audience an out to be okay with it. And violence in support of order, or done messily and chaotically, or are more often supported by audiences than violence done in an orderly, systemic fashion and done in support of or to cause chaos. All of this is important to keep in mind because... If you want the audience on the character side, it's a bad idea to just let them shoot a random person in the back of the head against the wishes of the commanding officer for no reason, and specifically to perform a surgical strike to as quickly as possible to send a crowd into a chaotic panic. At that point, you're kind of just... At that point, like I don't think your, uh, your audience is ever going to like this character. Okay, but with that covered, let's talk about the uses. So, firstly, as a plot device, the threat of or inclusion of violence very clearly and obviously raises the stakes and intensifies the plot. It can also be a plot mover, influencing the plot in particular directions or being the primary plot itself. You know, like assassinating someone or beating up the bad guy because he has a bad guy machine. It's also good for stakes, with the cost of the heroes losing being an act of violence inflicted on someone or something they care about. Violence is also a great way to include conflict because, you know, it's something our dumb little monkey brains can understand pretty easily. Talk shit, get hit. It makes sense to us that at some point, words don't work and the only way to resolve the conflict is to bash each other about the head and face with 2 by 4s until only one of us has the blood or brain cells left to be able to talk shit to each other. And finally, as we said above, catharsis in the same way as Gord... And finally, as we said above, catharsis, in the same way as gore. In fact, in literally the same way. Like, like including the desensitization and the organ ripping and also that uh, comment they made about Andrew and Ashley. Um, and all of that. Like, literally just go back and listen to that and you understand the catharsis that violence can bring to your audience. Which brings us to nudity. Which, if you didn't know, was when you have no clothes on and it's just your gross and or sexy meat flapping in the wind. And nudity can be used for a lot of reasons, both innocent and dirty. First of all, your audience investment shoots upward when you have nudity, just like their boners. Because in the West, at least, nudity is taboo, and tantalizing your audience's brain with a taboo is a great way to get them in. Also, if you have the character everyone... <laughs> Also, if you have the character everyone wants to fuck completely naked in the shower and you show full frontal nudity, you get the ones that are into that sort of thing interested because, oh man, do they want to see those massive boobs. What? It's me. What do you expect? 
Secondly, having a character be nude can demonstrate vulnerability and be representative of feeling exposed or vulnerable, be symbolic that they're exposed in a vulnerable state, or a literal weakness or vulnerability. How many more times can I say vulnerable? Depending on your story, if it's being used to discuss literary symbolism, of course. But by doing this, you're showing your audience that they don't have any fancy tricks or gadgets to hide since they have literally nothing. Although I guess they could technically keister a gadget, but I don't know if you necessarily want to go there. Uh, and you're also asking your audience to, on some level, relate to their vulnerability and feel exposed and unsafe wherever they are. Like, maybe through a series of plot contrivances, your anime waifu is deep in the enemy's cave base, entirely naked, and is trying to sidle through their monster sleeping quarters. While some amount of your audience has their dick in their hand, the rest of the audience feels just as, if not more, uncomfortable as the character is, and is therefore super invested. This can also be used to demonstrate the character's confidence, naivety, or insensitivity to nudity. Basically, that if they're naked non-sexually, it shows they comfort with their body, or that they don't conceive of nudity and sex being related like we do. Like, for example, if you introduce a character that is a fawn that doesn't understand human culture, and she has her boobs out and just doesn't care, and is more confused of anything why no one's making eye contact with her, or thinks that you're supposed to look at someone's chest in human culture, then you're making a statement about how weird this character is, and also pointing the mirror at us and asking, Hey guys, I know we're having a lot of fun, but why are we so weird about boobs? And all of these... And all of those uses would be to demonstrate some character building and show off their personality. And the last way is to represent birth, rebirth, and renewal, since, with exception of me being born in a three-piece suit, humans are usually born naked. Or so I'm told. Again, I was born looking dapper and have fallen off hard since then. But this representation means that when you have a character naked and some weird magic shit is happening around them, it represents a renewal or change in themselves or the world as a whole. Which, sometimes your audience might not even know until the later reveal that, no, you didn't just want an excuse to make people question their sexuality by showing Jason Momoa full frontal. You're implying that his character walking out of the bomb blast with his armor blown clear off was when he decided to start the revolution. And finally is sex. This is actually the shortest one here. And why is that? Well, because sex can be used and is often used in the same narrative place that violence is. Because it's a cathartic release of tension. If you know, you know. <laughs> I need to think about my ad libs more sometimes. Uh, a plot driver or device. A complication or a stake. You know, like stopping the rival from getting their slobber all over your boyfriend's wiener. Or a form of conflict itself. Like, sure, that sex scene was hot, but this is going to be a bigger problem when the rest of the kingdom finds out that you're fucking your husband's bodyguard. All that being said, there's more of a taboo around sex that we all know exists, but we still don't really ever talk about. Meaning, including sex, something that's generally pretty fun and satisfying and also pretty fucking hot, is often more controversial than including violence, something that's generally pretty shitty and feels bad and is also usually a stupid idea. Humans are dumb sometimes. Anyways, 
that makes sex usually feel a bit more exciting and forbidden than violence, and is also easier for a wider audience to relate to than violence itself, which is not something the majority of people will experience in their lives. And while sure, asexual people and turbo versions won't experience sex either, these topics are probably a little closer than the violence. Although, at this point, we're splitting hairs about human nature, and, like, which is closer to the core of human nature, violence or fucking, so I, just take it with a grain of salt and move on if you disagree with me. That's fine. Probably a good half of the field of philosophy also disagrees with me, and whatever. So let, let us pop onto the history real quick before we get back to philosophy. Okay, and so we start at the beginning of time when a village elder told a room full of people about the one time that she watched a cougar rip a man's head off. Kidding, we're not going to be covering the history of sex, violence, gore, and nudity in fiction, because we've talked about already these are kind of fundamental states of humanity, and we've just been talking about it as long as we've, as we've been able to speak. If not longer. So, instead we're going to be going over the history of censorship. Kinda. See, because while I could go into things like the occupation of censor in Rome, whose job it was to uh, police the morality of the citizenry, that's not necessarily what we're talking about. Instead, this is more censorship of those four specific things, specifically in fiction. And if you're asking me, is this because you're lazy? The answer is yes, but also how about you fucking try to find a history of censorship that goes back to when someone in ancient China at the dawn of human writing saw a poem about a dude scratching his nuts and burned it because it was cringy. So that justifying out of the way for a history that is probably not necessarily not necessary to begin with, uh, we actually start during the reign of Pope Galatius. Uh, which is 492 to 496, by the way, for all you fucking heathens that doesn't even know your popes like a Catholic boy. Oh, also, his reign ended when he died. Uh, he, <laughs> he reached the papacy and then died four years later, which I think might be a sign from God that you fucked up your choice. Uh, <laughs> anyways, uh, he started the censoring train in Europe all over again. God, I'm glad I'm not more popular. I'm just imagining Catholics coming at me for saying that. Anyways, uh, he started the censoring train in Europe all over again after the Romans dipped from history and fell into the mythology of fascism being a thing that's cool. Uh, but what did he start with? Well, most quote-unquote immoral text. And what exactly does that mean? Well, in this case, actually, he was talking about apocryphal writing, in particular writing that would be damaging to Christendom, and was also running contrary to, you know, Jesus Christ. And this wasn't necessarily a bad thing, since this included works that we've found since, that include things like justifying rape, telling Jesus, telling a child to go fuck themselves, supposed accounts from his disciples saying he was a womanizer that was very clearly written after the fact and was also very clearly false slander, uh, and supposed accounts of his disciples praising Satan. 
Yeah, that was a banned text. There was a medieval text that had references to his disciples, to the disciples of Jesus, using "quote unquote" occult powers to mimic the miracles of Jesus, because they respected and loved him so much that they wanted to be like him. So they asked the devil for help. Which, you know, that's a huge no-no in any religion. And, you know, that also makes sense of why it was banned. But after him, things get more morally gray, as during the Catholic Reformation, and after the invention of the printing press in the 1500s, they took it upon themselves to censor writers themselves, adding tons of books to a banned book list to be removed from Europe. And this includes everything from blasphemy to books on native practices, political drama and histories, plays, anything on sexuality, or anything with a vague hint of sin. At times, even stuff like old religious doctrines and recording, or records, or things that threaten the stranglehold of nobles, like stories of noble outlaws or shitfucker priests. And this culminated in the Index Librorum Prohibitum, which was a full list of heretical, immoral, and dangerous works of writing and entire publication groups or publishers. And this, I think, sums up a lot of the censorship we're about to see. It's almost always a moral degradation of society or keeping a firm grip on, on the public's balls, that kind of thing. Usually. But from there, we actually jump forward to 1896, when film is introduced to the U.S., and is also when we start to see the first stirrings from people that the film industry is a threat to morality. With movies like The Kiss by Thomas Edison, which is just a short clip of a couple kissing each other like an old man with a weird apparatus just told you to kiss, uh, being called a threat to the moral fabric. Which, uh... It's not even close to controversial by the modern standards. I think the most controversial thing is the man's mustache. And I know because I've watched it. Uh, I've I watched it twice in a like film study class uh, that I took, which was a lot of fun, by the way. Um, and also, I watched it again while writing this. And uh, yeah, no, it just it just looks like a nice couple sharing a cute moment. Uh, anyways, by 1907, Chicago had enacted censorship laws against films in America. And they got away with it because a court case goes to the Supreme Court by 1915, which results in film not being protected by the First Amendment. Which, hold on, I know you're about to dramatically drop your cup of coffee, but cool down a little bit, because in the same year, uh, The Birth of a Nation also gets banned across the U.S. So, yes, censorship bad, but also censorship good. Censorship morally great. I almost said censorship morally gay. <laughs> uh, censorship morally gray. But things get more nutty in the 1920s when we start to learn how fucked up and full of criminals the film industry is. I don't think we, uh, I don't think we got rid of them. Anyways, uh, from murders, mob connections, and even rapes and druggings, all of it goes public. Which then causes the government to flip its absolute shit and begin, and begin to suggest upwards of 100 censorship bills within a year. So to stop from being fully gangbanged by the United States, which is horrifying to imagine, especially the Alabama part, 
the first. Sorry, I had another comment popping in my head that I don't think I'm gonna make. Uh, the film industry begins to self-regulate and hires Hayes to found the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America to defend the industry from attack and prevent government meddling, as well as to soften the people in the community a bit and make them easier to work with. Uh, this culminates in a list of don'ts and careful motherfuckers. The don'ts are things like pointed profanity, including taking God's name in vain, damn, hell, son of a bitch, all the fun ones, uh, suggestive or litigious nudity, lechery, that's a fun word, drug trafficking, sexual perversion, okay, sex slavery, uh, and they specifically listed white slavery, but that means sex slavery, a little bit of racism there for you, uh, miscongeniation, which is a whole lot of racism for you. That's race mixing. 1927, folks, not the best time to be alive. Uh, sex hygiene and venereal disease, childbirth, children's genitals, ridiculing the clergy, willful offense of any nation, creed, or race, which I feel like miscegenation and saying white slavery are those things. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that list is a little... That list might be a little bit outdated. We don't use that list anymore. We'll get to that, but uh, the so let's also like just list that real quick. The list of uh, careful motherfuckers uh, are the use of the American flag, international relations, arson, firearms, like you can't show someone shooting at cops, theft, robbery, safe cracking, bombing, uh, which was specifically that you can't show people how to make a bomb. <laughs> which I gotta say what dumbass made a movie in 1925 that showed you step by step how to construct a fucking bomb what dumbass <laughs> anyways uh, brutality and gruesomeness techniques on committing murder methods of smuggling methods of torture hangings and electrocution sympathy for criminals which holy shit why is that one in there Attitude towards public characters and institutions, which is really fucking bad considering the 19-fucking-30s are coming. Uh, sedition. Cruelty to children and animals, which is actually a good one. That's good that that's in there. Branding. Prostitution and pimping. Rape or attempted rape. Consummating marriage, which... Okay. Uh, men and women in the same bed, which is actually why in I Love Lucy they have two separate beds. Seduction. They also just have marriage listed. I don't. I assume me. I assume that they're implying sex, but they just list marriage, so you can't show people getting married. Uh, surgery, drugs, law enforcement, or lustful kissing. Uh, which, if you may notice, is pretty similar to the Hayes Code that we covered a few episodes ago. Also, they really got rid of a lot of fun things. They also got rid of a lot of things that they probably should have. Uh, also, what you think I mean by that says more about you than it does about me. Sorry to call you out. Oh, uh, and then the uh, fucking Nazis do that funny little thing in 1933. They burned 25,000 books in Munich for being un-German. And then for some reason, no one saw that and thought, well, this isn't going to end well. 
and the world continued to ignore the Nazis until it was too late. And back to your regularly scheduled program with the Hays Code uh, being in place from 1934 to 1968. Don't think about that, how we could have stopped the Nazis much sooner, but decided not to. Uh, during this time was the heyday of the Catholic lead of decency, the Catholic Legion of Decency, who, along with the MPPDA and the Hayes Code, put stranglehold on what could and couldn't be shown in film, which had a wide variety of impacts. Some of them good, like censoring snuff films and removing nude scenes, which arguably not good. I think it depends on the movie but also include bad things like preventing critiques of the Nazis until the 1940s, because, quote, this doesn't seem like any of our business. But basically, right after World War II, we see artists start to test the limits, like the movie The Outlaw, which was delayed, but did eventually come out. And this paired with the competition from foreign movies and TV in the 1950s, aided in breaking down the Hays Code. In 1954, we also have the origins of the Comics Code Authority, which, like the Hayes Code, we've covered a bit already. In 1956, the movies Bad Seed and Baby Doll come out, causing some issues with the code and throwing the entire system into a public debate, including with Bad Seed if it's okay to kill evil children on screen. Holy shit. Um, and Baby Doll being about a woman being treated like a baby. Yeah, that has implications. Anyways, in 1963, the president of the Production Code Administration, Eric Johnston, don't get too attached, died. And in the power vacuum this caused, the MPAA began to shift away from the Hayes Code, and by 1968, they developed the MPAA film rating system. Um, and it started off as G for everyone, M for mature... R meant that people under 16 need an adult, and X means no one under 16. However, this has obviously shifted around a lot, with X being dropped and then picked up by porn, uh, PG and PG-13 added through the 70s and 80s, and M being just dropped entirely. Uh, and then now I think I think the equivalent of uh, uh, X rating that they had is NC-17. Uh, but then by the time that we hit 2000, a lot of companies actually realized that they don't need the rules anymore. Like Marvel, which stopped following the CCA in 2001, and Archie and DC stopping in 2011. And while all of the major film studios still submit their films to the MPAA, these aren't nearly as advertised anymore as like being important as much as they used to be. And with that, we're actually going to jump out of the timeline and go over to the current status. Alright, so as of uh, doing the research and writing, I haven't actually seen debate threads on these particular elements of the topic. However, what I have been able to find are what I'm going to call the alignments. And these are groups that generally agree with the people in the group and strongly disagree with the other groups. These are Radical Pro, Moderate Pro, Moderate Con, and Radical Con. So, for example, someone who is radically pro-gore thinks that all violence should be gory and that you should never shy away from showing gore when you can. Uh, this is the uh, creator of the boys comic, by the way. This guy actually exists. But someone moderately pro-gore disagrees strongly and 
Instead, thinks that gore is pretty useful and should be probably included for its effectiveness. Meanwhile, someone who's moderately anti-gore will think that's gross and it's probably better to not use it because it's already pretty overused, especially in like adult animation. While radically anti-gore think while radically anti-gore people think that you should never include blood and gore or al gore for one reason or another. Oftentimes this is because they're radically I'm a Sunday Baptist that doesn't praise Jesus until church time, judgmentally religious asshole. And let me just tell you, if you've encountered those people and not someone that's like a real Baptist, you don't know real Baptists. I I know real Baptists. If Jesus Christ himself came down from heaven and asked them to bash someone in the head with a claw hammer, they'd ask him how many times and then proceed to do it before he told them. Which is not me calling them monsters, by the way. It's me calling them faithful and also understanding that Abrahamic faiths are like warrior faiths. But anyways, that's kind of just like the state of things now. On the other side, we've never really seen a period that is both so controlling and so open. On one hand, while the levels of government control and intervention has decreased, the hold of corporations has rapidly increased. Because you need to be within certain lines to post on places like YouTube, Twitter, and all the other places that you can share your work. But at the same time, because Western and also largely worldwide culture is becoming more progressive and more in the mood to question ourselves with the powers that be, creators are less and less mandated or pressured into censoring themselves. So we're in a weird time, because you can make weird, gory, violent, sexual stuff without being worried about being called a criminal and having people morally support you, but the platform you chose to post on might just drop you. Alright, let's go to a why it matters. Okay, so why does censoring yourself and being careful about gore, violence, nudity, and sex even matter in the first place? Well, because on one hand, you want to be true to yourself and your story without compromising as an artist, compromising your choice of medium, or compromising your story. It's important to know how to do this because at times your story might require excessive gore and violence or will really only work properly if someone gets naked or there's some sexy times thrown in. Not censoring yourself at times helps you to tell a story legitimately. I mean, not legitimately in the sense of, like, telling a real story, but legitimately in the sense of a story that's true to itself. This is once again where I bring up the coffin of Andy and Lele and not make a joke about Andrew fucking his sister. Uh, it's a story about abusive relationship that is a story about abusive relationships, both emotionally and physically abusive, that use extreme levels of violence, gore, and uh, let's say uh, sexual themes with quotation marks to indicate that we all know what that means, to demonstrate the terror, awfulness, and just grossness of the abuse. It's important that's in there because that's the that's the theme and the message. However, on the other hand, it's important to know your audience and genre. Because not every genre demands and needs or should even have violence or sex in it to work. 
and even the genres and stories that can have violence and sex or demand or need them to work, your audience still might not be okay with it. You need to know who they are and understand their limitations and boundaries. And it's important to be consistent with your work so your audience knows what to expect. Because this half of the interplay is making sure that you know how to use those tools so you actually have an audience. I mean, for example, and this is just right off the top of my head, so uh, watch out. Um, like Junji Ito, it would be very effective horror if Junji Ito wrote like very calm, peaceful uh, manga for like 15 years and then just all of a sudden out of nowhere wrote Uzumaki and then went right back. That'd be the most terrifying fucking piece of literature ever written. But it would be for no one because his audience wouldn't read it because that's fucking terrifying and existentially uh, a, a problem. Yeah, so like his his style of work is body horror and existential terror. Meaning it's effective for people who are into that. Anyways, uh, this interplay itself is important to keep in mind because you need to understand that there is a debate and controversy around it because it is directly tied to the concepts of censorship, authorial freedom, and audience retention. So basically, treat these things right and they'll treat you right. Speaking of which... How do you use these tropes right? Oh, fuck, it already transitioned. Sorry, that usually doesn't happen to me. So, anyways, let's go through these one at a time. Starting with gore. And gore, because it tends to give people more of the ick than the others, has some rules associated with it. They're more universal than any of the advice. So, the first rule is uh, don't use this all the fucking time. It's not necessary. And your audience is going to get desensitized to it really fast. Which isn't what you probably want. Second, gore is great for shock value, meaning the best place to use it is when you want to shock your audience. There, you're going to get the most value out of it. Third, is that you should try to keep gore and plot separate. Why? Well, because gore hits the focus and trauma parts of the brain, which means that depicting large levels of gore while trying to tell your audience important things about your story will distract them and do one of two things. Make them forget about the plot stuff, or make them ignore the gore. But since it's still there, they're still getting more used to it than they would if you didn't have it at all. Which, I mean, to be fair, that could be part of the point. Like, having a mystery story set up within, like, a war story, where you have intense gore to set up the mystery, and then you show that scene again once they're desensitized, and then they see the thing that you're actually showing them the whole time. That's a cool idea. You're free to steal that. By the way, you're you're free to steal basically anything in these episodes. Unless I say don't. Uh, and finally, if you're going to do it, be genre compliant, if not realistic. Meaning that if you want those huge anime blood arcs, make an anime. But otherwise, if a character gets a throat slit, the blood doesn't usually spray out. It, like, dribbles. Now, here's the actual advice. So one of the biggest aspects of gore is the emotion of disgust. Regardless of how you use it, gore is disgusting. 
It's just a fixture of it being the inside parts being on the outside. It's like a is an intentional human trait that we're disgusted by gore. So like stuff that's gross, you can use it for anything that's along the range of funny to horrific. And the first step is to write descriptively. Don't just plainly said he bled all over the place. Instead, try his blood poured out of him and stained the floors crimson red. Also, you gotta get all five of your senses in there. Like, really motor both those intestines. If you've been around a lot of blood, it has an almost like sweet stomach's churning smell. What? I work in a meat plant. It's fucking foul in there. Get off my fucking back. That Get a sense of touch in there, too, and probably a sound. So that your he bled all over becomes his blood poured from him, leaving sticky, sickly sweet copper puddles of crimson across the floor. His desperate movements sunk the stains deeper, streaking and smearing like half-dried glue as appealed from his boots and harsh tack noises. See? Fucking disgusting, right? And disturbing. Second, use imagery your reader's familiar with. Like above, I used the comparison to glue. Because think, your reader probably hasn't been around a ton of gore and blood, and if they have, holy shit, uh, you need to be careful. So it's a lot more disgusting if you use words that make sense, but don't immediately shout gore to your readers. It's like instead of talking about a bone breaking clinically, compare it to the snapping of a pencil, or maybe breaking apart a chicken wing to eat the meat from between the bones. Food metaphors are very good for this, since we don't like to imagine our food being essentially edible gore from non-human creatures, especially nowadays, and it's something your audience is familiar with. It's like describing someone's abdomen as looking like a play of spaghetti freshly hucked into a wall, ceramic plate and everything. Yarnians knows what that looks like and is now disgusted. Also sad, because that's a waste of spaghetti. Fourth, keep the human element in there. How does your character respond to the gore? How does a person getting gibleted respond, if at all? How's everyone holding up? Does anyone want some water? Obviously, the answer should be poorly, and yes, water would be nice, thank you. But don't get bogged down jerking your cock off your own genius, and remember, you're writing a story. Describe it, move on. Don't get caught up in the... Ugh. Don't get caught up in the in the ick. Next, make sure you use your vocabulary carefully. Things like food and onomatopoeias are great because you're drawing your audience into the imagination process unwillingly, which not only forces them to pay attention, but makes them really grossed out and uncomfy, which is kind of what you want to happen with gore. Or if you're dealing with a story where the horror is the description of the biological processes, like body horror, then a more detached and medical take is appropriate. Make sure it's realistic because, sure, again, in anime or in a comedic use of gore, it's okay to be over the top because it's the genre. You aren't necessarily always doing that. And be careful in this one because this is where it's easy to traumatize yourself, like I have getting drawn to the wormhole of looking at bullet wounds and acid attacks, but a more realistic description is usually a lot more horrifying. Or, I mean, a realistic description that doesn't even have gore. You know, like running up on a group of people whose position has been hit by artillery and they're all just slumped over with bloody ears because a shockwave liquefied their organs but kept them intact. And that is scarier than a bunch of red stains that used to be people. It's also good to draw on your own life experiences. Like how getting a shot at the doctor feels to relate... 
by using how a shot feels to get related to being stabbed, or a broken arm to having a limb getting shattered. And it's important to understand there are writing, and it's important to understand there are wiring of disgust for things that are morally abhorrent, gross in the shit and piss way, and gross in the blood and gore way are all different. So you aren't making it more intense by including those. You know, like, you're not going to make, like, the... If your audience is desensitized to gore, you're not going to make it worse by being, like, and then they fucked in the blood. Like, that... That's just morally abhorrent. (laughs) And also probably gross in, like, the shit and piss way. So, like... You are making your audience disgusted, but it's not, like, the kind of disgusted that you're going for. Oh, uh, and also gore can make people more optimistic that the story's gonna end happily. I I don't know the basis scientifically for that, uh, since the evidence was the uh, good old-fashioned citation circle jerk of citing each other, so I don't know what study that's from, or if there ever was actually a study, or if it's just people who like horror movies uh, jerking each other off, but if you know where that's from, can you please send it to me so I understand what the fuck's happening? Alright, so, on to violence. Uh, where the first thing to keep in mind is that you don't always have to include it. Only if it's needed. Because if while you're writing, you decide to throw in a fist fight because things are getting boring or you feel like it's expected of you, then you're not doing this right. So, let's talk about some of the things to do when you write violence. Firstly, know your audience and what kind and level of violence they're okay with. In superhero media meant for most ages, or fantasy meant for most ages, like Teen Titans or Avatar The Last Airbender, violence is pretty common, but it's not usually graphic. And even when it is, there's a good reason, and it's otherwise just punch some bad guys violence and a tiny bit of like, oh fuck, what have we done, the cost of war and the horrors that we've committed for our country thrown in for some good measure. Also make sure to match your themes and elements. If your story is more about fear than gore, your violence should scare people more than it disgusts them. Or if your story is highly dramatic and everything is political, then make the violence serve the plot more than you normally would, and also keep it brief. Next, write your scene of violence in two different directions. The first being explicit and graphic, while the second is entirely without graphic violence, and ask yourself which one is more useful or resonates more with your audience and write in that direction. Make sure your violence means something, too. In general, people don't like to get violent, so when it happens, make sure it's pertinent to the story, because oversaturation can make your audience numb to the whole thing. And also approach it realistically and seriously. There should be stakes and consequences, and when someone gets hurt, consider letting it stick. You know, like if your super badass gets rocked in the face... Even they're going to be stunned for a second. You can't just ignore injuries or choose to recover instantly. And speaking of realism, there's some more ways to do that better. Firstly, know that people have strong reactions to violence. So when you have a character commit an act of violence, let it affect them. I mean, even justify violence can really fuck you up inside. Second, the threat of violence can be just as effective as the real thing. This means you don't always need things to end in a gunfight or fistfight. Because of the threat is just as good, it adds stakes to when it actually happens. Third, violence up close and personal is both terrifying and messy. Uh, Remember, 
when it's working well, the human body is gross and sticky and covered in fluids and also full of fluids. So imagine when things are getting bashed in and broken. Also, people do- people bleed a ton and quickly. It's also hard to be close enough to someone to feel the life literally radiating off of them and still trying to end it, so picture your violence has the weight it deserves. Fourth, most people have no goddamn clue how to fight. Unless a character is combat-tested, keep the fighting really sloppy, poorly executed, and filled with mistakes because that's natural and also gets across that your character sucks at this. And that was a stupid idea to even do this in the first place. But even combat-tested and trained people make mistakes. Fifth, your combat skills don't last forever. Characters good at fighting should be practicing or doing it constantly. Sixth, shooting people accurately is hard. Like how cops have a 40% hit rate on the high end. In a testing environment. Not even in in the stress of like a real combat situation. And if you don't trust that, I get it, ACAB. In 1989, a group of off-duty army rangers got to a shootout with drug dealers for half an hour, and both sides used automatic weapons. Here's the crazy thing. No one got hit. So, most of your shots should miss if, uh, you know, U.S. Army rangers can't hit in half an hour. Uh, Also, there were over 500 shots fired. Uh, so if you do have gunfights, they shouldn't last very long, uh, with the exception of the one that lasted half a fucking hour, um, and should be mostly misses, uh, since no one wants to get shot, and also if your opponent is more accurate and has a higher rate of fire, why the fuck are you gonna risk it by staying there? Speaking of which, people like living. So, rarely will someone refuse to surrender, and most people will try to either live or at the very least, bring their enemy down with them. Like, if you're taught Hema, you know, always keep your weapon ready to protect yourself, or if you are, uh, versed in modern firefights, stay in cover, because there's been cases of duels in the Renaissance where someone could stab their opponent through the heart after being stabbed in their heart, and both of them die. Or during firefights, there's been cases where someone's been shot through the chest, and their body is able to survive long enough for them to shoot back and kill the person that killed them. Okay, so now is nudity. And we're actually going to talk about non-sexual nudity, since sexual nudity is going to be covered in the sex scene section. Here, the biggest thing to remember is that, while you should be descriptive, non-sexual nudity works best when you don't get too in-depth on the details. You don't have to describe how big her her boobles are, or how thick his cum gutters are, or however you would describe that. The men I'm attracted to don't have cum gutters. I don't know what the fuck the appeal is. Anyways, just go, ah, they're naked now. Also, make sure that there's some kind of reason to have the character naked, because nudity isn't something that humans do a whole lot anymore, so... Make sure that there's a good reason, because otherwise it's going to take your audience out of it, and also it's just going to feel like you just wanted to show this character naked. Or this actor or actress naked. Um, Also, if you're uncomfortable doing it, just don't. You don't have to. You don't need nakedness to tell the story most of the time. And I, I would hazard a guess that even when it's plot-relevant, 
there's ways to do it where the person doesn't have to actually be naked. And, you know, while in visual mediums, nudity is an on-off switch, in written and imagined media, it isn't. Meaning that you can set the uh, detail slider wherever you and your audience is comfortable with, from highly detailed graphic descriptions where you talk about each individual pore to the vague, rather naked. So, now sex. And before you even do this, like, real sex, make sure that you do your research and either read on some uh, sex scenes or get your fuck on. Not that part. Make sure you're comfortable. <laughs> Being comfortable is the part that's, like, real sex. Uh, <laughs> I flipped the order of those sentences in my head, and I thought I was being clever by ad-libbing. Obviously, I'm not clever. Uh, but also, make sure you understand how sex scenes work in your genre, and make sure to adhere to the kind of general outline. Uh, then, think about some of the things below. Firstly, is it necessary? Do you need this scene here? Or do you just want to watch these characters bump their junk together? Because if that's the case, just don't write it. You can skip the scene and build the moments before and after, because gratuitous sex scenes are a waste of time. However, don't be modest. Just full send it. Use your five cents. Use your five senses. Be descriptive. Get your camera right into the gooch. Don't say they started to do a fuck, and instead talk about the sounds and feelings, the emotions, who's doing what. Be explicit, because if you have a full-on sex scene, your audience has probably been expecting it and are willing to engage with you. But also, let your audience fill in the gaps in the kinkiest way that you can imagine. While sure, some genres will use flowery meandry languages and talk about the emotions, others prefer to use very physical and specific writing and leave the emotion to the readers. Uh, regardless... Uh, especially if you do the that really weirdly like wholesome thing where the shot lingers on their hands as they slowly come together and then hold each other, that gets a lot of emotion across in the moment. But regardless, note how regardless of the genre, there's always some gap for the audience to fill in. Again, kinky. And also, you know, don't write multiple scenes in the same way, especially if it's with different partners or talking about different characters. Make the sex be something that tells the audience something about the characters involved and how they're feeling and doing. And if that feels difficult, think about the scene from either the character from either of the characters' perspectives. How would they, or you in this case, uh, feel about them? and what would they be doing? You know, much like a scene with violence, tension is important. So build tension leading up to the moment it begins. And then once you start, keep the tension ratcheting upwards until it reaches the climax, preferably, preferably for both characters. Once you have that climax, let the scene descend naturally. Again, make sure to show emotions and experiences of the people involved. What does it say about them? Believable sex is realistic and not idealized. In romantic stories, the first time a character has sex will be messy and imperfect and also probably a bit weird. I mean, make things like orgasms make sense. Let things go wrong. Include consent. And keep the people involved relatable and understandable. Use variety and pop open your vocab book. It's okay to use different words and phrases for the same thing. Like, instead of saying vagina over and over again, use some flowery words and synonyms. Finally, it is perfectly fine to keep it casual. 
you can make a casual sex scene. Usually, in the real world, sex is meant for fun and enjoyment, and not because it is plot-mandated. So if someone wants to be comedic, that should be fine. If there's a giggle or a chuckle or a weird, awkward moment where a character says something just completely out of fucking pocket, uh, or someone has a trip up that's funny, that's fine. Just make sure it stays within the tone. And uh, with that, we're going to go to the soapbox. Okay, so where am I at with this stuff? I feel like I'm kind of like a moderate pro across the board. I mean, I find gore and nudity really gratuitous at times, and try to keep it reasonable in my own writing. The genres I'm in have a lot of violence, and I like writing fight scenes, but I mean, honestly, dialogue is so much more fun for me. And sex scenes? I only write that for my smut writing in my own personal time. That being said, after this episode, I'm a lot more confident in my abilities in all regards. Because it sounds way more doable to do it right than any other topic we've covered so far. I mean, at least to me. Because I strive for realism in my, in my work, and I think that shines through. Especially in my fight scenes. I think coming out of this episode, the only big thing I've learned is how close I was already to handling this stuff well. Then how much I really need to do some like genre-focused episodes. But I hope that this episode can help stop people from crossing over to massive fucking edgelords. Because this topic is way more nuanced than censorship bad and titties and flying intestines good. I fucking hate cringe, my writing is good because it's offensive takes, almost as much as I hate the my writing is good because I'm a good boy, no naughty words takes. So I hope at the very least, if you're planning to write some, like, really cringy baby's first time writing without mom looking over their shoulder shit, reconsider. That being said, I will say that kind of writing does also have its place. Where is that? Well, it shows your personal ceiling. Where you're willing to go when no one's watching. And I mean no one, because you should never publish your cringy ultra-gore comic books until you get that ceiling established and understand where you want your line to be when you write other stuff. And yes, that was targeted at the boys. Let's go home. I really hope the creator of the boys doesn't find this. Anyways, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast feed, like it, leave a review, whatever else it is you can do on your platform of choice. Send me an email at waytappods at gmail.com. That is W-A-Y-T-A-T-P-O-D-S at gmail.com. With questions, concerns, opinions, compliments, insults, um, actually, your favorite of the four, defenses of why your cringing middle school sex and gore story isn't actually as bad as it sounds, and anything else you want to tell me about. Also follow me on Twitter at wait underscore pods, and also uh, check on YouTube for uh, old episode uploads, and uh, also uh, for some uh, fireside chat with Waytat. Maybe some other stuff that might be coming. Uh, remember to check out my other podcast, Waytat, where I talk about other topics that are generally a lot less hopeful and a lot less inspiring than this. But it's still good. <laughs>
All right. Uh, with that, have a good night. Have fun. Keep writing. And remember, if you want to take away my anime titties, you can catch these blood red hands. This has been Why You're Talking About This Nerd. I've been your host, William. Good night.